If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6 is where we have been and where we will be. And we'll read together verses 9 through 14 this morning as we continue to take a look at Jesus' model prayer as he teaches us to pray. Jesus says this in response uh, to his, his disciples uh, asking him to teach them to pray. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, several years ago, some of you have met my brother. Um, he is about 6'4", uh, so he's a good four to five inches taller than I am. If I stretch on a good day, I might get close to 5'11 and a half. Um, but he's, he's about 6'4", ginger-looking, gangly dude. Um, and so he's got kind of reddish hair, red beard, um, a pirate patch and a hook. No, I'm just kidding about that part. But um, he is, he's, kinda, he's tall and gangly and scruffy, usually around the edges, um, and pale as a ghost. Okay, So he, he's even paler than I am. I burn at the drop of a hat. He burns before the hat even falls. Um, but we were out fishing together on a lake close to where we grew up um, several years back, and uh, we had been running around the lake all day long, hitting different spots, and we were running out of fuel, and so instead of pulling the boat out and going to a gas station where it was cheaper to buy gas, we hit the gas dock where it's marked up a lot um, because it was convenient. And so as we were kind of idling up into the marina and pulling up to the gas dock, my brother's standing on the front deck of the boat um, and he is kind of trying to judge when is the appropriate time to step off the front deck of the boat onto the dock and he misjudged it a little bit on this occasion. <laughs> this is, I love telling the story. So here he's on the front deck of the boat and he goes to take that step and it was, we were a little further from the gas dock than what he anticipated whenever he made that move. And his momentum from stepping off of the front deck of the boat, you know, you, as you push forward, kind of push the boat back just a little bit further from the dock. So he ended up straddling the dock and the boat with the boat drifting further away from the dock moment by moment. And so my brother, who's never been known also to be much of a, an, well, he might take some offense at this statement, much of an athlete, um, but he, he, he activated every core and leg muscle in his body, right, at that moment, trying just to brace and hold on, trying to pull that boat back to the dock with all of his might and power, okay? Well, fortunately, for his sake, he did not fall in. He was able to kind of muscle the boat back to the dock, and it made contact. We were able to tie up and fuel up. Uh, but he was essentially for a moment that he was straddled between these two places, right? He was straddled between the dock, of, the dock that was fixed and firm and immovable, and he was straddled between the boat that is floating out there on the waves and the water. He was, he was, he was split between these two places or positions. And listen, church, that's exactly the place that we find ourselves as Christians in this world. We are straddled between, we have one foot in the world that is and one foot in the world that is to come. 
Right? Paul says it this way in his letters. He speaks of how we have the inheritance or the down payment of the Holy Spirit who's come to indwell within us. And the Holy Spirit moves in and begins to reshape and reform our lives into the image of Jesus. And yet we still have the, abiding, the flesh that abides within us. Right? That wars against the Spirit. makes war against the Spirit because it, has, it wants what it wants and it wants it now. And so we're kind of split between these two worlds. One foot in this world and one foot in the world that is to come. We're straddled between the dock and the boat. Right? And Jesus knows this and he teaches us how to pray in the midst of it. It's one of the most beautiful things about this prayer is that Jesus knows the exact position that we find ourselves in. And he knows exactly how to teach us to pray. Right? Jesus teaches us that in prayer, right, in the Lord's Prayer, one of the things that he teaches us is this. Is that prayer is not, listen, get this. Prayer is not about pulling the dock closer to the boat, but it's about pulling the boat closer to the dock. You with me? It's not about taking that which is firm and that which is fixed and that which is immovable and that which is solid and that which is stable and pulling it close to that which is floating out on the water. It's about taking that which is floating out on the water and pulling it up to which, that which is fixed. That's what prayer is about. Prayer is about, Jesus says, becoming more aligned with God's priorities rather than aligning God with our priorities. You ever feel that way? Like I'm trying to align God with my priorities instead of trying to be aligned with His priorities? Prayer is all about aiming to be persuaded to embrace God's agenda fully and readily rather than persuading God to endorse ours. There's many people who come to God with their own agenda saying, God, would you rubber stamp it? Would you endorse it? In fact, I'm going to take your name. I'm going to plaster it on my agenda so that I would have the support of all your people. And God says, that is, I'll say it this way, that is to take the name of the Lord in vain. When you try to take his name, attach it to your agenda to accomplish your purposes. Prayer is not about that. Prayer is about aiming to be persuaded to embrace God's agenda, not to get Him to endorse ours. Prayer is not bending God's will to our will, but it's softening our will into God's. That's what Jesus says next in the Lord's Prayer. Last week we took a look at hallowed be your name. This week we're going to take a look at your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And historically, what theologians have called this portion of the prayer is the prayer of submission. It's a prayer of submission, right, because it's pulling the boat closer to the dock, day after day after day after day. And there are two pieces of this prayer, and we're going to look at them in order. First of all, Jesus says, your kingdom come, your kingdom come. See, if we're going to be people who pray, and pray rightly, right, aligning our agenda with God's, aligning our pursuits with God's, that the things that are near to God's heart will be near to our hearts. We need to learn to pray this prayer of submission by pleading with God. There's pleading within prayer. Do you know that? You come before God and you cry out to Him. There are times in which things happen in this life, like Steve mentioned earlier, that are just unfathomable and they continue to happen and the only response is to get on our knees and cry out to God and plead with him but that same level of intensity that we feel in the moments of crisis also ought to be present in moments of stability in which we're pleading with God for the invasion and expansion of his kingdom the invasion and the expansion of God's kingdom Jesus teaches us to pray your kingdom Come. God, we want your kingdom to come. 
We want it to break forth. We want it to invade and we want it to expand. Now the kingdom of God in the Bible is essentially God's rule and reign over all things that He has created. And what Jesus teaches us to pray here is a wartime prayer. Right? This is not a prayer reserved for peacetime. This is a prayer for wartime. Whenever we're going to war against all other competing rulers in our lives. We're going to war against all other competing affections and loves in our lives. It's pleading with God, listen, that every puppet king that has set itself up against God or in God's place would ultimately be torn down. It would be overwhelmed and overrun. It would be overthrown and overruled. It's praying that God's territory, the territory in which God is acknowledged as king in your life, that it will be ever expanding. That's when Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. That's what he's teaching us to pray. That God's kingdom would invade personally more and more of your own personal territory. That it would lay claim to more and more aspects and arenas of your life. That you would bend the knee to Jesus and you would submit yourself to God in all facets and areas of your life. That every other ruler would be expelled. Right? That lust would be driven out. That controls us. That we bend the knee to. That greed and pride would be driven out of our lives. Right? That jealousy and envy and strife would be driven out of our lives. That all of these works of the flesh, right? because we still have the indwelling, the indwelling spirit is there, but the flesh is still itching to be scratched in our lives. Because we've operated that way for so long under its influence and control. And Jesus says, your kingdom come is praying that God's kingdom, His rule, His reign would invade more and more deeply into our lives and claim more and more territory that God would be king and His righteousness would reign personally in our lives, overthrowing every other ruler. Because I want you to know something, church. Every other ruler in your life is committing treason against God and against you. Do you know that? you know what treason is? Maybe you're like, man, I'm vaguely familiar with the concept, right? Benedict Arnold back somewhere in the Revolutionary War right, became infamous for being one of the greatest traitors in American history by switching teams, right? Here's what the uh, definition of treason is. It's an offense of attempting by overt acts to overthrow the government of the state to which the offender owes allegiance or to kill or personally injure the sovereign or the sovereign's family. The crime of betraying one's country, especially by attempting to kill those in power or overthrow the government. That's what treason is. right? The one to whom you owe allegiance, the one to whom you owe loyalty, the one to whom you owe all your love and affection, you seek to overthrow. And there are rulers in your life that are seeking to overthrow your loyalty and love, your allegiance and affection to God. And they're committing treason against Him, usurping His authority and stepping into His rightful place on His throne. And not only are they aiming to rob Him of His glory, because you're, you, they, they, they prom- make you promises. Listen, all these other rulers make you promises they cannot keep. You know that? You know that by now? So you're like... No, I'm still learning it. Listen, I am too. <laughs> I am too. They make you promises they cannot keep. You submit your life to them and you yield your actions and the members of your body to them. And what ends up happening is you walk away not satisfied, but filled with shame. That's the economy of every other ruler. 
That's what they deliver. They promise satisfaction, they deliver shame. They promise satisfaction, they deliver shame. And they're committing treason against God by robbing Him of His glory, but they're also committing treason against you by robbing you of what is best and good in your life, of submitting your life to God. So listen, the prayer of submission is this. When it comes to God's invading kingdom, it's a prayer for every competing ruler to be arrested, to be indicted, to be tried, and to be sentenced to exile and removed from our life. That's what the prayer of submission is asking. When we say, your kingdom come, God, personally, would you invade more territory? And would you expel and expose and exile every other competing ruler in my life? Everything that stands against your glory and everything that stands against my good. That's praying your kingdom come. That's going to war against sin in your life. And praying that God would begin to weed the garden of your heart and remove all of those roots that are still there on the surface that bud up on occasion. You have any of those left? Some of you are like, no, I'm pretty good. This means you don't have enough self-awareness and too much pride, so that's still a taproot there under the surface. Right, that he would weed the garden of your heart and begin to remove those things. Right? That you would war against sin. That God's kingdom would invade, but it would also expand. When we're asking for His kingdom to come, we're also asking for it to, His rule to expand in our world. Right? That His kingdom would be like the tree that, that, that Jesus describes in the parables. That starts off as a small seed and it grows into a large tree in which the birds of the air come to take up their residence. It's a picture from the prophets that's describing the nations of the world coming to find shelter and shade under this tree as God's kingdom expands over the course of the globe to all the people groups around the nation. Around the nations, let me say it that way, and in our nation, because our nation's a melting pot now. Always really has been. <laughs> of all kinds of people from all kinds of places and all kinds of backgrounds. And Jesus said, when you pray your kingdom come, you're praying not only for God's to claim more territory in your life, but for God's rule to claim more territory in our land. And to expand its borders further and further into all the peoples of the earth. That we would be a praying people who pray for God's rule to move out from this place to the east coast. You know, like all those liberals. I just, need to, I just need to bunker down in the south, right? That it would expand to the west coast. It would expand to people in the north and even into the deep south where there's deep-seated sin issues, that it would, it would expand across our country, that it would expand to the people off the block in the inner city and people from the burbs, right? that it would expand to people who live uh, in uh, uh, high-rise loft apartments and people who live in their secure bunkers out in the country with stockpiles of ammunition as preppers just waiting for that day to come when they could pull the trigger. And set off all those mines that have planted on their 20 acres. I know you're out there. <laughs> I did it expand if to all kinds of people, to registered Republicans and registered Democrats, registered Libertarians and Tea Party and Green Party and every other party, that God's rule would not be confined to one political party, but it would be people, people of all parties bending their knee to Jesus, no matter how they think the government should be run. Right, that it would be 
expansive. People who homeschool, people who private school, people who public school, with white skin, black skin, brown skin, tan skin. People above the equator and below the equator, that it would expand out even from there. And there would be people one day gathered around the throne of God, bending their knee to God and submitting to His rule and reign from amongst the Naguki people of South Africa. And from amongst the Dolgan people in northern Russia, from the Zimba people in the Democratic Republic of Congo to the Oromo people in Kenya and Ethiopia, from among the Bodo people in, 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 in India and the Wano people in Indonesia, from the Icelander people in Iceland to the Tuxa people of Brazil, and from the Crimean Tartar people living in the southern Ukraine to the Warani people of Ecuador, from the Nyunga in southern Australia to the Eskimo in Alaska, that God's kingdom would ever be expanding into all these peoples and all these places. Do we pray for that? When Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, that's what he's teaching us to pray. That it would invade more and more personally and it would expand more and more globally. That's a big prayer. That is not a trite prayer. That is not an easy prayer. That is a big prayer. Do we pray that way? Do we pray that way corporately as a church? Do we pray that way personally in our own prayer lives? God, would your kingdom invade more and more, take over more territory in my life, heal areas of my life that I never thought could be healed? Do you bring those before him? And do you pray that peoples around the globe who have never known the name of Jesus would bend their knee to him in worship and adoration he would bring healing in their cultures as well? Is that a part of our radar as a church Or are we only concerned about our own privatized sector of Christianity that exists in the eastern suburbs of Dallas, Texas? That's what Jesus is teaching us to pray. And oh, that we would pray that as a church. That God's kingdom would even expand in our own local territory. This place that God has planted us. Some people look at us in Fate, Texas, meeting in a daycare facility, and they go, why that church? Why that place? Let me tell you why. Because we want to see the city of Fate. We want to see a a gospel witness planted in the heart of Rockwall County that would expand out to the ends of the earth. As God's people are saved and sanctified and sent, wherever God would call out of even, yes, this small church plant. Who knows what God has in store? But if you believe the statistics, let me give you a few statistics about when you ask why here, why now? Why, why start a church in a daycare in Fate, Texas in 2015? Right? Because in 2015, let me give you a little bit of his statistics. In 2000, in, in 2000 there were 602 residents of Fate. And today, the, today, the population estimate is over 15,000. That's over a 1,500% increase in population over the course of that span of time. It's been one of the fastest growing cities in the nation over the course of that span per capita. And if fate continues to grow at that pace, which if you look around you and you see all the dirt turning everywhere and new developments going and the ones that are here expanding even more rapidly if it continues to grow at that pace then in 2030 there'll be over well over 20,000 people who call the city of fate home 
2015, the population of Rockwall County was estimated at 96,000 people. And based on the projected growth patterns and rates over the, those same 15 years, there'll be 170,000 people in Rockwall County in 2030. The western edge of Hunt County continues to expand rapidly. The southern edge of Collin County continues to expand rapidly, five to ten minutes away from this location. Right? There are people that God is bringing into this community. And people go, well, there's already large churches here. Why are you praying for kingdom expansion through church planting? Here's why. There are large churches, and the largest church in our community has about eight to 9,000 people that gather and worship in its building on Sunday mornings. If you were to project that out, it would take about 10 to 12 of those churches to reach all of Rockwall County, and there are not 10 to 12 of those churches in Rockwall County. In 2030, it would take 20 to 25 of those churches to reach all of Rockwall County. And there are not going to be 20 to 30 of those churches in Rockwall County. And so we need to ever be expanding and planting and seeing gospel witnesses raised up in neighborhoods and amongst people to share the truth of Jesus with them. So that that God's glory might be seen by all peoples in all places, including those in our own backyard. Are you praying for kingdom expansion? I got to move because we're running out of time. But your kingdom come, that God's kingdom would invade more territory in your life and it would expand globally and locally in our own backyards. But the second thing that this prayer involves, this prayer of submission involves is this. Not only pleading with God for his kingdom invasion and expansion, but also pleading with God to bend our will to his. And this might be where we struggle even more. I know it is where I struggle. To bend our will to his. Jesus says we must learn to pray, your will be done. See, prayer at the outset, listen church, at the very outset of prayer, prayer is about two things, right? Before it ever is about anything else. It's about two things. It's about the exaltation of God we saw last week, hallowed be your name. That God's name and his renown, that his honor, his reputation would be lifted high, that he'd be seen for who he is, that he'd be known and experienced for who he is in all of his beauty, in all of his majesty, in all of his glory. Hallowed be your name. Set apart and above everything else in our lives. God, would you make it so? Prayer is about the exaltation of God, but it's also about uh, not only the exaltation of God, but the renunciation of self. Before Jesus ever moves to give us this day, He moves there through your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says you must learn to plead with God to bend our will to his. R.C. Sproul, who's since gone to be with the Lord, wrote this about the Lord's prayer at one point. He said, I have often wondered whether Jesus, when he set forth the priorities of prayer, had a reason for listing the petitions in the order that he did. First, he listed, hallowed be your name. Second, was your kingdom come. Third, was your will be done. Those petitions may be distinguished from one another, but they're so interconnected that we dare not divorce them from one another. I'm convinced that although we pray for the manifestation of the victory of the kingdom of God, it is futile to hope for the victory of God's kingdom on this planet until or unless the name of God is regarded as sacred. Because God's kingdom does not come to a people who have no respect for Him. Likewise, we pray that the will of God would be done in this world 
But God's will is not done by people who do not regard him with reverence and with adoration. So the very beginning of godliness, he says, the very beginning of transformation in our lives and in our society begins with our posture before the character of God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. God, would you bend my will to yours because I value you above all things and above anyone. Jesus says, if that's, if that's not first, if God's name is not first on your lips, then His will will not be first in your life. That's reality, church. Thomas Watson, who's a 17th century Puritan pastor, spoke of this kind of pleading when he spoke of it. He talked about it this way. He said, when you're asking for the will of God to be done, it involves like, it's like a coin. It has two sides, right? A head and tails. On one side of the coin is diligently doing all the commands that God has commanded. Right? That's one side of the coin. Diligently doing all that God commands. Your will be done in my life, God. Everything that you've said, I want to bend my will towards that. It doesn't naturally come, but I want, to bend, I want it bent towards that, God. And I'm pleading that you would do that. That I would diligently obey all that you command. But the second side of the coin is probably the more difficult one, and it's this. It's patiently submitting to all that He inflicts. All the difficult things that come our way, all the suffering that we experience, all the pain that we encounter in this life, that we patiently submit to that. And this to our modern Western culture. Students, if you're in high school right now, young adults, wherever you are, middle-aged adults, older individuals, whatever you want to call yourself, senior adults. This is hard for every one of us. Here's why. Because in our modern Western American mindset, submitting to all that God inflicts and diligently doing all that God commands sounds to us like suicide. That we're absolutely losing ourselves in the process. But that's exactly what Jesus, where Jesus says you would find life. And this is a part of the life of prayers, pleading with God, would you bend my will to yours so that whatever comes into my life that you have allowed, that I would patiently endure it, that I would patiently submit to it without rebelling against you. And whatever you have commanded of me, that I would walk in those ways and my will would be bent towards it. See, in our Western American culture, we have a baseline of uh, understanding or expectation of an easy, comfortable, pain-free life. And listen, do you know that we are the first culture in human history that has expected that? (laughs) The first culture in human history that has expected life to be without pain, life to be easy, there not to be any hardships, not to be any challenges, not to be any suffering. We're the first culture in human history to be born with that expectation. Every other culture that preceded and predated ours understood that life was hard and then you die. And God was good in the midst of all the pain and all the tragedy and all the hardship and all the loss. That's what every other culture that came before us understood. And we expect a life where there is no resistance. We expect a life where everything falls into place. We expect a Disney-esque kind of life. I remember as a child growing up in the 80s and watching the Disney Sunday family movie. On Sunday nights, I think it came on ABC, right? And they would just kind of roll through all the classic Disney movies and they just kind of keep regurgitating those for about three years until everybody got tired of watching them. But I remember watching them and the, very, the intro sequence to the Disney Family Sunday night movie was the song from Pinocchio. It was just a score from it, right? That when you wish, 
You know how to sing it, right? Upon a star makes no difference who you are. Because when you wish upon a star, you're what? Your dreams, they come true. Right? That was indoctrinated into a whole generation of adults who are now emerging into their 40s. Thinking that one day, man, if I just wish hard enough, my dream's going to come true. And we're still holding on to that. Right? That's what we've been indoctrinated with. That's what we believe. That if we just wish hard enough, we just wish long enough that Jiminy Cricket, he's sitting on our shoulder, he's going to keep singing. Right? Your dreams, they're going to come into fruition. They're going to come into reality. They're going to come true. We're conditioned to believe that. And as a result, here's what happens. Our prayer lives get shaped in a way that are exclusively trying to pray things into existence rather than at times praying ourselves into endurance. Do you know the difference? We're trying to pray things into existence rather than praying ourselves into endurance. And there are times whenever we pray, God, bend my will to yours means not that he's going to change our situation, but he's going to change us through our situation. He's going to produce endurance within us that James will say later on actually gives birth to character in our lives as he brings about change in us. And it might be hard, and it might be difficult, and we might not understand what God is doing or what's going on, but He's a Father who loves us at the cost of His own Son, and so we trust Him. We trust Him. Listen, there was an article that was released in, back in the, in the mid-90s in the Atlantic Monthly Journal, and it talked. It was, it was an uh, article on, on child psychiatry and psychology, and it was kind of going against the grain at that time of the last 20 to 30 years of parenting advice that people had been given within our nation. And because up to that point, for a, a long duration, the expert, all the experts, the experts always change their mind about every 20 or 30 years. Have you ever realized that? So all the experts up to that point in, 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 in our culture were saying that children are born with this kind of pristine beauty. Right? You have to kind of let them discover who they are for themselves and kind of work that out into life. Right? But they had done a research study. And in that research study, they had actually they had done a cross-cultural research study across 36 cultures in which they'd interviewed people. And they, through that study, they had come to, to verify some of the conclusions that had been, that had been proposed, some of the theories that had been proposed about neuroscience right? and temperaments. That we're hardwired with some temperaments, things that just come naturally to us. And the way that we respond in certain situations. You see it in your kids from the very early ages. And they had labels that they put on these different temperaments that they had. And, but up to that point, they were saying, listen, don't try and push your kid against the grain. Don't try to push them towards something that doesn't come naturally to them. But through that study, they identified three different temperaments. I don't remember what the names were, but I'm, here's what I'm going to tell you. All right? This is how they described them. They were anxious. They were aggressive. And they were laid back, kind of phlegmatic, okay? So the anxious people were always, like whenever they faced challenges in life, or whenever things started kind of turning south, they were like, I knew it, let's run, right? Because I'm, I'm terrified. So they would shrink back into the corner. The aggressive people would say, let's get them before they get us, right? We're going to take it to them. And then the laid back people would just be like, well, that's life, kind of rolls off my shoulders, I'm just going to keep rolling. You got these three different temperaments. And up to that point, they were saying, listen, you've got to let your kids work it out. They've got to figure out who they are. They've got to discover for themselves. You can't impose anything on them externally. They would try to shape them in one direction or another. 
But what that study and that article had concluded, right, was that, 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 that these leading child psychiatrists said that it was the worst thing that a parent could do in their child's life was just always let them do what comes naturally. Always let them do, kind of go with the grain in their life. It was the worst thing that a parent could do. And here's why, right? Because if, if they were always going with the grain, always going naturally, then here's what would happen. Right? You realize there are some situations you're going to face in life where an anxious response is the right one at times. Right? To want to pull back just a little bit to kind of protect yourself. There are some times in which a more assertive response is called for for you to kind of take action and move forward. And there are some times in which you do have to let things kind of roll off of your shoulders and kind of keep moving forward in this life. Right? But if, if, if they're not hardwired that way, then there's got to be some, something acting on them from the outside to kind of encourage them, to call them, to direct them at times in this situation to have this response, in this situation to have this response. At times, the study revealed you had to push your kids against what came naturally to them so they could have wise and rightful responses in a variety of different situations as they emerge into adulthood. And there are some people who say, well, I love my child too much to force them to do something that doesn't come naturally to them. That is not loving your child too much. That's loving yourself and the love you're getting from your child too much. Here's why. Because when you force your kid to go against their grain, what happens? They get angry. Can I get a witness? They cry. They get frustrated. They get upset. Right? They might run. When you force them against the grain, those are all those kinds of emotional responses that are elicited in them. And it's actually the most selfish thing that we can do not to push them in that direction because what our problem is as parents is we love the love that we're getting from them more than we love them if we're just always allowing them to go with the grain. Because our hearts are bound up with theirs and we're in distress when they're in distress. But the most loving thing you can do is push them against the grain in their life. So they become more able to handle with resiliency all the situations they're going to face. And if we as imperfect, fallen and frail parents do that to love our children, don't you think our father who is perfect would do the same? Don't you think he would command of us some things that are beyond our ability to accomplish? to teach us just how desperately dependent we are on Him. Don't you think He would allow some things to afflict us at times, to remind us of how needy and helpless we are? So that we, like Jacob, you remember the story of Jacob in the Old Testament whenever he wrestles with God? And, it's, and the text says he wrestled with God and prevailed. But he prevailed with a broken hip joint that lagged with him for the rest of his life with a limp. And the way that he prevailed was not because he wrestled God into doing what he wanted God to do, but because God reminded him how needy and desperate he was for him. So that he walked with a limp the rest of his life. Prevailing was the recognition of his need for God, not strong-arming God into accomplishing what Jacob wanted to accomplish. And God will do that in your life. Are you praying your will be done? God, would you bend would you bend my will to yours so that I'm not always, I'm not, I'm, not just, I'm not just 
before I run, listen, if you're not praying that, you're going to run right past it to give us this day. And you're going to say, give us this day our dream, my dreams, right? They're going to come true, God. I'm wishing on the star. I'm praying to you. They're going to come true. Give us this day. Give us this day. Give us this day. And you're going to run right past your will be done. And what you're going to miss is that sometimes what God has willed is not always what you want. That's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? It's a hard lesson for me. I remember serving in a church as a student pastor, as an interim student pastor, before they called a full-time student pastor. And I had submitted my resume for that position. I was hoping to be selected. Karen and I were dreaming about what, right? Wishing on a star. We were dreaming about what it was going to be like to raise a family in that community and be a part of that church and see it flourish and be a gospel witness there. And the day that I was taking our kids to the Youth Evangelism Conference... That Sunday evening, that Sunday at lunch, the pastor took my wife and I out to lunch, sat us down and said the search committee has sifted through all the resumes. They appreciate your service here, but they're going in a different direction. And all my dreams that I had kind of, my plans I had put in place for my life were just shattered. And that was one of the first times God taught me that what I want is not always what He wills. And there have been multiple times in which he's continued to try and drive that lesson home through life experiences. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done. The invasion of God's kingdom personally, the expansion of God's kingdom globally, and the bending and softening of our will to God's will. Listen, this morning we come to the Lord's table in response to God's word. And as we do, I want to remind you of the fact that what God is asking of us and when He teaches us to pray is something that He Himself has done. I love that. I love that so often that whenever God commands and asks or asks something of us, that He Himself has walked that path first and He's walked it in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane whenever Jesus is facing the impending cross that loom out there on the horizon? Jesus is facing the greatest storm in human history. Not long after my wife and I moved here to Dallas, I can remember watching the news and seeing Hurricane Katrina building in the Gulf. And I can remember seeing it strengthen and be more well-defined as it began to approach the, the southern tip of Louisiana, as it began to push water up all those rivers and bayous and canals and channels, as it began to topple levees, as water began to rush into neighborhoods and displace people, as people gathered in the Superdome trying to find one place of refuge or shelter. Some evacuated the city. Some stayed there to ride out the storm. But listen, here's the thing. I remember sitting in my home watching, knowing it was coming, Knowing what was about to take place, not the full extent of it, but the, the, at least a good guess of what was going to take place in the most low-lying city in the southern, perhaps in the southern U.S. That portion of that city was going to be devastated and wiped out. Lives were going to be lost. Billions of dollars of property damage were going to occur. From which that city, at that point, we thought may never recover. Listen, church, I want you to know that when Jesus was in the garden... And he looked out on the horizon. He saw a storm coming, one more intense than Katrina. 
Because it was not just rain and lightning and water and thunder and wind. It was a storm of God's wrath against our sin that was going to fall on him. And he pleads with his Father, if there is any other way to accomplish the redemption of mankind, would you make it so? But nevertheless, what did he say? Not my will, but yours. See, Jesus pled these things for us. And apart from him pleading these things for us, we wouldn't be here this morning. And we would have no hope of a future in which all the challenges of life that we face, everything that he inflicts, everything that comes our way will be eradicated one day and will be in his presence fully, finally, and forever. Everything will be healed. And when we come to the table, we come as a foretaste of that. Of His shed blood, of His broken body that has paved the way for us to know and enjoy God here and now and to experience Him fully and finally and forever one day. See, on the eve before Jesus was betrayed, He gathered His disciples in the upper room and He took the bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body that's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me every time you eat it. He took the cup and he blessed it. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And every time you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Every time that you come to the table, you're coming remembering what he has done in Christ and reaffirming your commitment to him. And so maybe as you come this morning, You come with a spirit of prayer that says, your kingdom come, your will be done. May all my love and loyalty be yours, Jesus. And may you bend my will and soften it to yours. Let's pray together. Father, we come today thanking you for your grace. Thanking you for the cross. Thanking you for your son's shed blood. Thanking you for his broken body. Thanking you for the fact that you walked the path before us, before you ever called us to walk it ourselves. And that you walked it for us in our place because you knew we could never walk it ourselves. And so, Father, this morning we come with humble hearts receiving, receiving your kindness and receiving your goodness as we remember what you have done for us. And God, may that, Father, may that spur us to deeper senses of love and loyalty to you regardless of whether or not our dreams and plans for our life ever turn out the way that we thought that they would or should would you tear down our preconceived notions about how our lives were supposed to turn out and that we would yield them to your hands not meaning that we would never dream anymore but that we would hold those loosely So that if they do not come into fruition, God, that we would not walk away from you angry and embittered. We wouldn't turn our backs on you, but we would continue to show you our love and loyalty and worship you, even through the midst of the pain and heartache of our dreams falling apart. Would you give us grace to do that? For those in the room this morning, 
are struggling with another master or ruler that's ruling over their heart, God, may this morning may they bend their knee and may your kingdom invade more personally in their life than it ever has. As they yield themselves to you. And Father, may you use this church that you have planted in this place for your glory in this community and to the ends of the earth. That your rule and reign would expand. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.